All right. I am here with legendary investor Bill Tai. Bill, it's, it's an honor to have you on the show. Wonderful to be here, Michael. Yeah. So you and I have known each other now for a number of years, and uh, we last saw each other at Consensus uh, in Austin. But I, I'm, I fondly uh, recall our time together actually at, at Davos at the World Economic Forum, where we were actually skiing for one of your, your Acti gatherings. And one of the things that I admire about you is I think you balance extraordinarily well um, sort of the notion of, of serious investing and business, and yet integrating that with play. And I know, I know um, Richard Branson is, is a friend of yours, but he's the other uh, individual that comes to mind when, when I think about this sort of new paradigm, if you will, of, of how we can integrate uh, play and business to forge community. And I'd love to hear a little bit about how do you, how do you think about the notion of play or these types of gatherings, kite surfing, et cetera, as it relates to sort of alpha and, and generating uh, advantage in your business? Sure. Well, actually, you know, there, there's a, uh, I was once quoted as saying to the truly engaged work and play are one and the same. And yes. I really, I believe that. And I live that, you know, if you think about the moments in your life where you, you had the most uh, productive output per nanosecond or whatever it might be, uh, they were, they happened when they were things that you wanted to do, that you were inspired to do, not that you were being paid for, you know, uh, at an hourly rate just to get done. So I try to live my life and inspire people to live their lives. And also uh, when I help uh, form early stage companies, I form them around concepts and people where I think I'm just really just unlocking them to do exactly what I said. And those things always seem to work the best. I, I love this notion of unlocking. You've been obviously extraordinarily successful taking over you know, 20 cup companies public you're very good at this unlocking process. And you've also been through a couple of different seasons as it, as it relates to technology. Um, I'm, I'm wondering what are the sort of timeless principles or characteristics you look for in a company that you decide um, is, is, is unlockable to, to, to some sort of exponential sure. uh, you know, future? Well, actually, I'll talk both about the seasons or the waves as I see them, because uh, mm. I am a kite surfer. I spend time on the water. And I'll also talk about community, which we touched on right at the beginning. But um, anyway, so back to, you know, kind of empowerment community, um, a lot of the kiteboarding stuff I did, and that, that's a whole other story. In, 19, in year 2000, I had had a bunch of companies go public uh, through the decade. I, I started in venture in 1991. So Going into venture pre-internet and riding that wave was uh, great timing. And by year 2000, I had also along the way started an ISP in 1995 that Goldman, Morgan, and Solomon took public as uh, 10 data centers in uh, year 2000. And I basically retired, started kiteboarding, uh, but ended up getting sponsored as an athlete. And during that period, um, I formed a uh, really fun, kind of almost a, a homebrew computer club of kiteboarding with tech people. Um, it was a sport where you couldn't really just read something and do. You had to talk to somebody, just like the early days of building computers. And uh, 
that became uh, what we know today as ACTI, which is uh, athletes, conservationists, technologists, artists, and innovators. It's a 501c3. And we support two things. We support environmental conservation and economic empowerment through entrepreneurship. So it's, uh, it's come full circle. I was a little long-winded, Michael. Sorry, folks. Not, so not at all, my man. I mean, there's so many different ways, actually, I, w- I would love to go. But, but I, but I want to, having been uh, and participated in the, uh, the Octai events, I would also say, you know, for those listening, because a lot of folks that do listen are, you know, on their way up, so to speak. Uh, you know, you, you've, you've obviously uh, demonstrated a, a tremendous amount of success um, and reinvented yourself. Uh, a number of times, but I think one thing that is oftentimes not considered is, you know, this this notion of, uh, you know, obviously in the Web three and and beyond, there's this notion of alpha, and and there's there's asymmetrical advantage that is presented oftentimes based on proximity to the right people. And what's interesting is I've found oftentimes that the proximity uh, is often oriented around with with those who are. <laughs> Who, who have the who have the greatest alpha, the greatest opportunity and information are often is often around causes and often around impacts. And I know that that's true for you because I've seen you be a, a, a tremendous advocate and, and builder around um, technologies that can have uh, broader social impact, as well as you know, you know it's interesting because you obviously are dear friends with Richard Branson. He I, I bring him up because he also shared his sort of great alpha, which he shared with a dear friend of mine named Craig Clements, who's been very successful in the CPG industry. Um, You know, he's like, what's the, you know, what's the greatest tip you can give in one of these, you know, masterminds. And he said, you know, I, he said, the best tip I can give is to work out every day. And at (laughs) first he cut, at first he kind of took that as like, Oh, come on. I want my money back. So to speak, you know, like that, give me, give me the real juice. And, And he said over the years, he's actually come to realize that that simple truth is, is exponential because he, he just went recently down to Necker and, you know, I don't know how old Richard is at this point. I'm guessing he's in his seventies, but, yes. but he basically crushed everyone in the, in the morning swim. He was the first up at six, tw- you know, six in the morning, you know, to swim over to the, to the other Island. And he just said, you know, I, I realized that actually, um, that then in those swims that in that exercise, but also just in this, in the, in the mental state that's created from, from that exercise, there, there is, there's profound advantage that's created. And although it seems simple, um, you know, you are, I'm, I'm guessing that if someone wanted to get your attention, uh, you know, if they were kite surfing, that would be probably one of the better ways to do it. But also I'm guessing that you probably have some of your best conversations, you know, as you're about to put into the water or, or, Hanging or, at the or beach, otherwise. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. No, no exactly. So can you talk a little bit about that in terms yeah. of like, how do you, how do you think about, you know, the way in which play intersects with, with alpha, so to speak? Yeah, actually, so boy, there's a lot of points uh, to talk about uh, and the questions you raised. But so on this notion of proximity, um, yep. size of wave and unlocking people, and then the workout thing, and then uh, specifics to kiteboarding. Okay, so the um, the proximity thing is a fascinating thing because when I was a semiconductor chip engineer, I hardly ever talked to anybody. I would sit in a little cubicle and, you know, design stuff. And yeah, I would work out, you know, after work and all that stuff, but it was kind of a in your head kind of job, you know, and, and very little uh, social engagement. And 
all you could do was only all you could do, you know, and there was power in that if you really like hustled and were really focused on something, but you couldn't achieve great gigantic things alone. Like there's that phrase, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, you know, go, go with, uh, I think it's everybody or whatever you're afraid to go with a team go together. Yeah. In, uh, in my case, as my career progressed, the thing that I started to understand about my kite network in particular, which was a cross-section of people that had similar interests uh, in kind of sport and you know extreme sports, basically, and being out there and trying stuff and experimentation, um, was that I eventually, through my Acti community, built a gigantic spider web of people. And... I describe my life today as being one where I'm just like a little spider sitting on this gigantic web of people holding hands. Mm -hmm. And all I do is I just hang around and I wait for vibrations doing what I would you know, do every day. And when I feel a vibration and there's a lots of them, I'll go and check some of them out. And when I do, because I've earned uh, this reputation for credibility, if I resonate with that vibration coming from someone else, all the other spiders will come running to help whether it's providing funding, providing ideas, jumping on and being an advisor, wanting to be an employee. So it, it's, it's magical. I have a gigantic, uh, the network is a gigantic resource pool that can tap somebody with a magic wand. And I'm just a gateway. I'm just a channel. So it's not, you know, these big hits, those aren't really me. That's the universe flowing through me to empower an entrepreneur to do what they want to do. And, uh, and then on to waves, you know, what, what makes the resonance feel right? Well, so I think because I've been doing venture now for over 30 years, I have a sense of uh, market size and timing. The thing that, that you really need to have an outsized hit is asymmetric risk. You need to, you know, you can make a bunch of little investments, but um, you're wasting your time on the ones where you think, oh, I might double this. You, you want to find things where when you spent the time, if it worked, it transformed an industry. And that's mm -hmm. where it was worth it, really worth it to spend your time. And the other stuff was noise. The other stuff basically prevented you from working on something that could really change the game. So people, I think, are fascinated sometimes in that I basically operate, I've got a big community, but I don't have a fund. I operate by myself. I don't have an assistant. And I just kind of cruise around and I'll make maybe two, three, four investments a year. But my hit rate somehow is, is pretty good. You know, of course, <laughs> yes. we've had a big bull market lately too, which helped turbocharge it. Uh, you know, and then I think on the, on the notion of, uh, let's see, let's see, we're talking about uh, community and waves and uh, uh, I think the technology empowerment workouts and kiteboarding. Okay, so, you know, surprisingly, you know, Richard, Richard's an incredible guy. His, he has a lot of superpowers. I think his, one of his great superpowers is the ability to pick great people and also unlock them to do what they want to do. You know, if you, it, it, when you experience anything that is a virgin company, um, one of the things that you'll notice is that your interactions with the people are generally just better. They're happier. The people at Virgin are happier people and it's like a magnet, you know, and I think it's reflective of his, of Richard's personality, the culture of his organization and the filter uh, that he applies and his organization applies to picking just 
really good people. And, uh, and I think, uh, uh, the workout thing, it's fascinating because, you know, I, I think I do that too in a different way. I think I'm more kind of uh, focused on specific technologies than, than him, but he's, he's a master at just building organizations. Um, what the, the common thing you've pointed out, which I didn't actually know, I mean, I, do, I did know that he basically works out in the morning and then, you know, uh, does some of his work and then leaves the afternoons open. My life ended up being structured the same way but not with intention. It just happened that way. But the workout part, I do get up early. I usually like hit my, I, I flip on, you know, something, I flip on CNBC at six, you know, six, six thirty, um, watching the market, multiplexing with emails and working out. And I do, you know, an enormous number of sit-ups, push-ups, pull-ups over a couple of hours spread out. And then, uh, and then I'll find time to go for a run. And I, I usually, if I'm at home, I'll run five miles pretty much every day. And in that five mile run, I decide what I'm going to do the rest of the day. And I only do three things. And, and it sounds crazy, but I found that generally speaking, there's only a couple of things that really matter every day. And that uh, I look at the, the kind of the daisy chain of things that will stem off of the stuff on my kind of mental to-do list. They change in priority all the time. But there's usually just a couple that I know that if I didn't do them, a lot of other stuff falls down the track or falls off the track. And so I just decide, well, what are the three things I'm going to do today? And I do them. And then sometimes I'm done in 20 minutes. Sometimes I'm done in a couple hours, but that's, that defines the end of my day. And then the rest of the day I can go kite surf or do, you know, play chess or what, do whatever I want to do, you know? So it's a, it's a very efficient way, I think, to really set priorities, to have a fluid fabric and not be controlled by a calendar that's being set by an administrative assistant that doesn't have subtle context on everything. Um, mm. Go ahead. No, I just wanted to, I, I'm just kind of having my mind blown here <laughs> quietly, where, wherein you said a couple things that, that, that I just want to sort of reiterate one, because I want them to really bake in for myself, but I think also for those listening and, and I am I'm, I'm drawing a correlation. It was interesting because I, I, I actually had the privilege of having Laird Hamilton on the show and he drew a corollary between his surfing and his relationships that, that was kind of my big mind bender from the episode. But one of the things that you just drew that, that I'm, I'm seeing if there's a correlation and sort of sitting with is, you had talked about this notion of when you invest, you're not really looking for 2x. You're looking for that exponential outsize kind of industry changer. And, and, and then you talked about sort of the simplicity of, you know, starting your day right and inactivity coming up with those sort of three core decisions that are going to be the focus of your day. And to me, what I'm processing now, and I don't know if those two, how those two are related, but but this notion of, of, of high leverage decisions and high leverage activities seems so, um, it seems simple, but yet profound, because I feel like many people live their lives trying to get 8% interest or 6% interest yeah. on, on their investments, both in, in terms of, and then structure their time, right? Which is oftentimes, how can I get more time in the day, right? Like not even I'm working 40 hours a week, probably they're working 60, 80 hours a week all to try to catch up behind the wheel of something to try to add, you know, and, and if they're lucky, you know, not be in debt, but also, you know, try to make, you know, six, 8% uh, 
you know, a year on their, on their money. And, and that's kind of the, the narrative, if you will, that we're sold, right? Like this, this kind of like oftentimes born out of this sort of industrial capitalists kind of school system in which we're, we're, we're kind of oriented around being a cog in the wheel. And what, what's striking me about what you're sharing is that you're thinking, uh, you're creating the time and space to really be in the listening, if you will, right? This notion, of, which I love of you, you know, sort of using the analogy of yourself as a spider on a web and having the ability to, to be in the listening and, and be, and not to sound woo, but it sounds like almost to be a, a conduit, if you will, or a vessel, which, which interestingly enough, I don't know, did you ever read the book, Big Magic? I have not read Big Magic. Okay, Bill, you're going to love this book. So it's it's by uh, Elizabeth Gilbert. And, uh, mm-hmm. She wrote the book Eat, Pray, Love. I don't know if you're if you're if you've read that book or familiar with it, um, but it it was a book that it was a book that let's just say knocked the socks off of uh, any author would be very very happy with the results she created with that book, right? You know, multiple New York Times bestsellers sold millions of copies around the world, and what she talks about is this notion of of creation and creativity, which I think you just beautifully articulated. And that is, she said, many artists and creatives, entrepreneurs get caught in trying, especially if they've been successful in trying to replicate that success. And they become in a way uh, immobilized by that success, right? Like many musical artists that we love uh, create an album and then they'll never create a sophomore album because they're daunted by trying to replicate the success of their freshman effort. Right. And with eat, pray, love, she'll likely never create a book that is that quote unquote successful. Um, and, and she's, so she basically talks about the creative process and she says, it's not about your ego trying to create the next six most successful you know book it's about continuing to create right so it's literally about just being in the process of creation going for that next run writing a children's book writing a coloring book basically just staying in the process of, of creation because that's when the creative muse moves through you that's when the ideas move through you totally agree As, yeah Yep. Yeah. And yeah. as someone who's who's now helped shepherd over 20 companies, which is which is a hit rate that is that is unprecedented, I would imagine. And I, I guess I'm just I'm pu- pu- putting that out there to, to say, you know, you could you could have easily rested on your laurels and said, OK, I've had my big success. I'm done. But it sounds like you actually approach this in a, in a sort of analogous fashion where you're sort of in the listening around where that next you know, great creative exponential company or act could be. Is that accurate? And, and, yes. and, and please, re- please refine any, you know, I'm just sort of riffing because I'm in the listening, you know, and I love this act of, of talking to highly successful people and how they think about things. But, but yeah, how, how do you sort of consider your next great success and your process to your next great success? Yeah. So, you know, the, the, what you were describing about uh, artists trying to recreate what they did I, I, I am being and failing at that. I get that. And I totally, I, I totally understand that from my, you know, kind of my younger days, you know, as I, I was building a, you know, good, a great reputation in my first industry in the Silicon thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, as I stayed in it, like a lot of my friends that entered that business when I did stayed in the industry and many became, you know, successful uh, managers or CEOs of pieces of that industry. I just kept moving horizontally. And uh, I think it allowed me to sort of, uh, you know, shape serendipity, so to speak. Um, 
the staying in an industry, yes, I could try to keep repeating what I did at slightly larger scale every time. And yes, that can work. It's very labor intensive, um, but it's, it's, it's kind of confining, right? Because the marginal, the marginal things that happen are relatively small compared to the big inventions that are happening alongside the first discontinuities created, especially in technology. Right. So, you know, we live in this world today where where there is a transformation that we have been living that people do call the fourth industrial revolution. And it's gargantuan. And there are so many ways to to grow enterprises and to grow networks and to grow value. You, you just kind of have to stick your hand out in the right place. And the question is, how do you find the right place? Right. If you stay in the same vertical, if your industry is growing, great. You will ride that wave with that industry, but you can't easily outgrow it. It's, it's labor-intensive outgrow it. So one of the keys in life, I think, is figuring out where the waves are going to be and, and then placing yourself there. And you mentioned Laird Hamilton. I've got, I've got some wave analogies to investing too, but uh, one side story, when I started kiteboarding, I was with two uh, pro windsurfers off the coast of Mexico who had brought kites that I'd never seen before. They, they were just coming out and they were jumping over these waves. And I thought, wow, those are, those are amazing. I should, I can do that. You know, and, and like magic that winter, I inherited a kite from Laird Hamilton. So Robbie Nash was trying to get Laird to ride his brand, the Nash kiteboarding line. And uh, I think he had a kite that was a little bit too small for him. He's, he's a lot bigger than me. And he gave his kite to his chiropractor who gave it to an investment banker who gave it to me. Like, and along the way, it was kind of like, well, I don't think I'll ever use this, but I know one guy that well. And sure enough, I ended up with Laird's kite, taught myself the kite in 2001. And uh, um, along the notion of waves and how you spend your energy, because I think a lot of life is about distilling signal from noise. And as you mm. described that 8% interest in chasing this and that, so many people like it's 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 amazing to me to see so many people I know that just uh, flood themselves with tactical, basically bullshit, trying to, you know, uh, chase a thousand little ways when yep. you're far better off just sitting back on the beach and watching the water and trying to understand where the discontinuities might be. And then paddling a little bit to get in front of them, right? There's this phrase, you know, I'd rather be lucky than smart. I think being smart is putting yourself in the path of luck. And I think with respect to building companies, there's times when it's easier to build and times when it's impossible to build. And the times when it's easier to build, it's like, you know, if you're, if you're looking to put together a company uh, and you think of yourself like a surfer, your, your, your resources are your little board in the face of, you know, all this choppy water out there in the unknown, it's cold, you get your wetsuit on, you're out in the water and you see waves coming. Okay. So there's really only three positions you can be in. You can either be way ahead of the wave on the wave or behind it. And so, you know, if you're behind a wave, no amount of energy, no size of fund, no energy you expend will get you on the front of the way right. So if it's already gone and there's leaders there, forget, it. you know, it's really just too hard. And then if you're way in front of it, the question is, when do you paddle? 
Because I think most of my career, I was way too in front of the wave and I had to learn to kind of tune it down. And just, you know, if I had a thought about building something, I had to wait, you know, seven years and then it'd be about right. You know, because if you, if you paddle too soon, you get great people around your idea, you raise a bunch of money, people are all excited, you paddle, 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 nothing happens. And then people are disappointed and you lose momentum and you got to keep feeding the elephant of burn and it's just too hard. So if you can time it right and be just a little bit in front of it, all you got to do is paddle once. And everybody that surf knows that feeling where, oh, they just paddled once and they're up, the board's going, <laughs> you know? So, so the energy of markets is exactly the same as waves across the ocean. There is a time when the market's receptive, the funding's receptive, the people are receptive and, the, and all you got to do is, is kind of spark it and all the resources come and you create your little microeconomy. And there's times when no amount of energy will do it. So, so the timing matters a lot. And, uh, and then I think uh, the efficiency I spend, you know, and when I think about what I'm going to do uh, outside of like the big decisions of things I got to get done on how I run my life, generally speaking, I will tilt my decision towards things that lower the friction in my life so that I have more time. And the, uh, the, I remember a seminal article I read, and everyone can find it by Google searching, Bill Gates sees Warren Buffett's calendar, or maybe Warren Buffett shows Bill Gates's calendar. Okay, so at that time that this story got widely circulated, uh, Bill Gates, I think, was you know, an incredibly scheduled man. And his calendar was full from morning to night with every minute of the day with handlers, you know, locking everything down. And, and he saw Warren Buffett's calendar and there were two entries on it for the next six months and everything else was empty. And Bill Gates was like, what? How is this possible? Berkshire Hathaway must have over 20,000 companies and you only have two meetings in six months. And, and what Warren explained to him which is written up in this article, is that, well, you know, priorities change across things. And uh, there are so many things going on in his, you know, Berkshire Hathaway uh, empire of companies. He wants to be available when it matters. Right. And so, so I remember when I read that article, I was like, you know, this is like going to be like magic. Cause I, at the time, I was, I was also over schedule. I had, you know, 15 or 20 companies I was working on. I had a, a wonderful administrative assistant. Uh, her name's Tracy Plumer. She was working for George Boutros before she came to work for me for a decade or more. And um, she had it down. Like every minute of my day was covered. She understood everything about what needed to get done every day. But she, I think just by force of efficiency, had taken over the input to my network too, because things had to match the calendar that she was managing, uh, which was her job. And it's a lot easier at the margin to book meetings for people that were known, that were in the existing network. And it cut out all of the soon to become Melanie Perkins and the Eric Yuans and people like that, that would go on to create hundreds of billions of market value because she didn't know who they were, you know? So, so it wasn't until I made that shift and I could just drift around on the beach and be where I wanted to be 
and have an informal network that was totally open where I could meet with anybody, you know, pretty much on the fly. That's when uh, my productive model, which was already productive, it's supernova. So I'll, wow. I'll end it there. Yeah, I, there's a, so many things that came up there. I'm, I have a big smile on my face. One is is the virtue and value of time, which I think is is totally under undervalued in our in our society. It's it's probably our greatest finite resource and our greatest wealth. Uh, I think if you have if you have health and and time in front of you, you you're a very wealthy person. You've 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 sort of won the lottery. Uh, but but the, but I actually the question I want to ask is about that notion of you I love how you're using the analogy of the waves and I love how you're talking about being on the beach and sort of that having that space and time in front of you um, and the the story you just shared with your assistant not necessarily knowing you know forgive me mixing analogies but where the puck's gonna be like she knew the hitters that were popular you know in your existing network but she didn't necessarily know the the superstars of tomorrow. And therefore didn't schedule them in as it relates to your spidey sense, as it relates to your, because I'm, I'm, I'm imagining, and I, and I'd love you to, because I'd love you to correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine in the 30 years of venture, one of the consistent aspects of what you look for in your investments, I would, I would guess, I would venture to guess is good people and, and founders that you uh, believe um, have what it takes to, to lead an exponential and successful enterprise. Um, it, it, one, what do you look for in people and or what, what sets your spidey sense off, right? If imagining you're on the beach and, and you're meeting with one of these superstars of tomorrow that you decide to invest in either through your time, energy, or you know your resources, what are the things that sort of set off your spidey sense? You know, generally it's... Uh... It's an awareness of what problem they want to solve, uh, why, and an energy about it that's a little hard to describe. But, you know, like if I look at uh, both uh, Melanie Perkins at Canva and Eric Yuan at Zoom, they knew exactly what they wanted to build. And uh, from day one, you know, for actually from, from T minus three years, you know, so they had been thinking about it. And, you know, Melanie had a small business business. Um, making high school yearbooks out of her mom's living room um, and wanted to make it more efficient and had a little operation uh, uh, called Fusion Books. And she was also a teacher teaching Adobe uh, classes on how to use Adobe. Hmm. So, so she could see it, right? Because she was trying to use a product that didn't fit her needs. And, and I, it was a big market. It took me a little while to see that one in terms of, uh, you know, how big it could be. But uh, as I, as I started to, uh, as I started to engage with her, what was happening in my head at the time was I was, I could see the shift occurring to cloud and mobile from older methods of doing things. And I was funding cloud everything, you know, so I was uh, Treasure Data, which I co-founded was Cloud Hadoop. Eric's uh, Zoom was Cloud Video. Um, Wish was Cloud Shopping. Uh, Canva became Cloud Design. And at the time, um, you would buy this product from Adobe for a few thousand dollars and, and get it in a CD-ROM in a box, you know, and then, then you would have to pay thousands of dollars and spend three weeks in a class to learn how to like, you know, which buttons to click on to do what, you know, and I laugh now because 
it, no one laughed then. That's how it was done. Yeah, you know, yeah. but uh, it was very clear that the cloud and the ability to, uh, you know, kind of granularize different things to feed the customer at a pace that uh, made sense. And also the backbone of connectivity and the sharing of content to have a marketplace uh, were things that the cloud would bring that the Adobe model couldn't do. And so, uh, and she just, uh, uh, you know, despite being in Perth, Australia, which is like really far away and there had never really been a tech company out of there before of any real super significance, um, she was very persistent and clear in her vision and uh, had that, I, I would call it healthy naivete that one has to have as an entrepreneur, because if you knew all the things that could go wrong, you'd never start a company. And uh, Eric was the same way. Eric had been uh, driving stuff inside Cisco for WebEx, uh, knew there were structural problems with the product. Uh, you know, WebEx worked great and was a gigantic business, but the cloud was going to be and could be transformative in the way um, the, the back end was built. And so, so I think he also had that, you know, energy and sense of purpose where, you know, I'd say both of, neither of them came up to me and said, if I do this year, the company's going to be X billion dollars and you're going to, you know, we'll all make a lot of money. It was never about that. It was about, there's a better way to do this and I, I can make it happen. And, and, and then it was me from the outside looking at it thinking you know the market size is big enough it's a little bit like a snowball's chance and you know in hell try, trying to you know come out in eric's case with a product compete to compete against free products from microsoft and google you know and build a company but i was like you know if this works and it could it should work you know it's a question of time it could be big and canva was the same thing it's kind of like well and i remember looking up adobe at the time and thinking you know, can Canva take on Adobe? Adobe's worth $30 billion. They have, you know, a, a 75 or 80% gross margin structure, infinite cash, worldwide distribution. And I was like, she's going to try to take this on from Perth, Australia. And I thought, well, you know what? You would have never been able to take it on from Perth, Australia before the cloud. But <laughs> yes. you know? And then I thought, you know, and the $30 billion is not a bad thing because it's a big market. You know, and then after I funded Canva, the magical thing was Adobe's value kept going up and it got to 300 billion, you know, so it gave a big umbrella of, because uh, I think the whole world obviously with social media and the way things have all gone digital has shifted to digital design. And so the, the usage base for what could be, you know, what would become Canva moved from, you know, a, a narrower market of digital professionals to really everybody on the planet that wanted to create a picture, you know, with some words on it, that was a social media background or a menu or you know, whatever it is. It's the market's probably a hundred times bigger in terms of user base than it was when I funded her. Yeah. I mean, I'm a user of both products and it, it's fascinating to hear this sort of inception story of, of the psychology of what things were like sort of, you know, at the inception point or, or early days and, and sort of obviously now it feels like a default reality. Like, of course, of course, Zoom, of course, Canva makes total sense. Um, but but I want to I want to pause it for a moment because I, 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 I recognize that your time is valuable and and there's an area I want to sort of 
transition a little bit from the success that you had with these these sort of large scale kind of cloud-based companies and move a little bit into which you were super early in as well web3 and with the with the particular lens which is you know you've given already this analogy of waves and one of the things that i'm going to take away that i thought was super valuable is this notion of of how you engage commensurate with where the wave is and actually spending the time on the beach to watch the wave and, and be sort of in the listening and in the observation because in its in its in its best articulation you're a one paddle and up uh, if your timing is right and uh Currently, as we record this conversation, there's been a, it's been a very uh, tough week, so to speak, uh, for, for the broader Web3 ecosystem in terms of values and valuations, et cetera. Um, the psychology is definitely more on the, on the fear side. Um, yet, some people would argue, and definitely there's the old adage, right? Fortunes are made uh, when there's sort of blood on the streets or when, when the market is really down. As you look at the wave of Web three, which 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 is many waves, uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I we yeah, met a in lot of subways. We, we yeah, we've met. I, I met you, I think, in twenty sixteen or twenty seventeen. There's definitely been a a crypto winter since then, or a lull in waves. Um, mm-hmm. You, I think, been in since you know early, you know, I don't know, twenty ten, probably even earlier. You've been in. You, you're one of the OG OGs. But but as you think about right now, where we have. You know, we it's still a you know I would I would argue it's still likely a nascent industry, but there's definitely some institutional adoption. Um, but we we contracted from a three trillion dollar industry to now less than less than a trillion. There's definitely some fear. Um, how do you think about how do you utilize that wave analogy now? And and as you're on the beach looking at the current conditions, how would you advise an investor or builder in the space? to think about this particular period in time as it relates to sort of um, uh, the wave that is Web3 at this particular moment? Sure. Yeah, you know, it's um, uh, as a builder and a a very early stage builder, because I, you know, I don't know the exact like average of headcount when I get involved with companies, but uh, a typical project for me will be funding a one to five person, probably one to three person team and, you know, starting to paddle. Uh, and uh, so when you, when you operate at that level, you do have to pay attention to the bigger uh, financing waves, which go up and down a lot. And we're definitely down, you know, kind of in a correcting period uh, because you're, you're wanting to time it so that ultimately you will have other people there to help you carry the load and fund it later when the burn rate's a lot bigger. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have to be aware of what's happening with the financial markets. But I think the ability to build is getting better. Just as the financial tickers are coming down, the, if there were such a thing as a ticker for measuring uh, ability to build good companies um, uh, from a person, uh, a human capital standpoint, it's going up inversely. Like it's like they're, intersecting, right? Uh, Because the problem that you have in the highly liquid markets where everyone's feeling really well off, like we were, you know, a year and a half ago or so, is that you get uh, a very different tenor of of energy. 
and you get a lot of speculators. You get a lot of so-called tourists that are coming in just because the wave is moving and maybe they flew in with a you know helicopter so they were able to catch the wave for a little bit, but they're, they're catching it at the top. And the, uh, the issue from a human perspective is that as you're building a company in that kind of environment, it's really hard to find good people because a lot of them got head faked into joining startups with high paper values that may not make it. You know, there, there's just too many companies with too much money and the, the, there's a scarcity of good people and the cost of bringing people on are too high. And you're trying to race with against everybody else to get attention of customers. So you blow your money in very inefficient ways. And in the down markets, they're, they're magical. It, it's, it's like going back to that homebrew computer club where people were showing up without a salary and working on stuff because they wanted to work on it. And people would join projects because they believed, not because, oh, well, I'll pay you $5 more than this guy. <laughs> you know. And so, so I think to the extent that you can get away at the core of a company from the transactionalism that drives speculative behavior, you know, the better off you are. And I think when you, when you have rampant speculation and uh, people, you know, like totally focus on optimizing that 8% thing that you talked about across, you know, wide, wide scale, that's the kind of like, you know, picking up pennies in front of the steamroller business that became, you know, what's inside 3AC. And the same thing that happened at Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns and the credit default swap markets when they collapse, because you get a lot of people that are, are not in it for authentic reasons. Mm-hmm. They're in it to make a buck. And so yep. when you have hordes of people, they're just trying to make a buck. It's just, it one, it's kind of a shitty environment. And I, I've, I've always hated those periods of the up cycles because you get swarmed with all those people throwing all these ideas at you. And they're the exact opposite of what I described in the passion and authentic interest to solve a problem that I heard from Eric and, and Melanie and the people that I'll fund. And so, uh, so I love what, what we're about to come into now because it's time to build. And I mean, it's always time to build, but, but my job as a builder is going to get easier and better uh, over the next four or five years. From a, a macro investing standpoint, you know, we've hit some air pockets here, just like we did many times before in other markets, whether it was the, you know, the, the, the you know, when I look at what's happening with uh, the uh, artificial wealth creation, if you want to call it that, of what, what can happen in things like, you know, crypto or the ad markets from the 90s, they're the same. You know, back in the 90s, you didn't have a token around it, but you had an ad unit. And you would have dot-com companies calling their you know, friends at other dot-com companies and saying, hey, I'll tell you what, I'll buy $2 million of ads from you. You buy $2 million of ads from me. We'll both show a lot of revenue and no one has to write any real checks. You know? And then the multiples will go up. <laughs> you know? and, and that happened a lot. You know? And so the ICO market was a little bit like that, you know, where, where if you made money in one ICO, you'd flip it over to another one. And it was this you know, kind of pro-cyclical up, upward spiral. And some of that was happening in the NFT space too, but uh, you know, not, I think, to the same extent as ICOs because ICOs are more fungible and you could buy volume of those where NFTs you're kind of buying one at a time. And yep. um, uh, so the granularity was a little higher. People cared, I think, a little bit more about what, what image they bought because they'd identify with it a little bit more than just you know, 
a speculative idea on some token. So I think the flushing out that we are having now, one was required and two, you know, it's happening. So you can't stop it. So I think you just, you know, uh, that, you know, that, that phrase, you know, keep calm, carry on, definitely do that as a builder. And I think uh, as an investor, I think you want to pick your shots because what's going to happen now is a lot of stuff is going to get thrown out and undervalued relative to where it should be. Mm. And uh, much like, you know, Amazon was going to be an up and comer that, you know, when it went to six bucks, people thought, oh, it's like Webvan, <laughs> you know, it's going to go out of business. It's like pets.com, you know, and uh, uh, well, went to thousands of dollars a share and market cap of a trillion, you know, but, uh, but at that time, the, the flushing of the toilet of the system drained so much money that had to fill up holes of margin that everything went down. You know, and I can't, I can't really tell you, you know, predict the outlook for really well-run companies like Zoom, but it's been interesting for me to see a company like Zoom that in its last quarter still grew 14% year over year and on a billion, 1.04 billion in sales generated 500 million in cash. You know, uh, it's very profitable and it's, mm. it's multiple as a SaaS company is not any different than the other ones that lose 40 cents on the dollar of sales in some cases, you know, so, so that may resolve uh, long-term into much higher valuation for Zoom, might not, but, you know, it feels like the stage is set for that as a possibility. You know, I'd say that there's many other companies out there that uh, are being thrown out like that, that are better than their peers, but the valuations are all the same right now because everyone's afraid. Is there, are there companies, you know, obviously I, that, take this with a grain of salt, but are there companies or projects? And I, I want to directly after this question, I want to get actually into what you're building, which I'm extremely excited about, but um, I'll, I'll use an example on my side. So, um, so one of the reasons I got involved, for example, in the Moonbirds community um, yep. and the proof community because of exactly what you articulated, right? Like I, I look at someone like a Kevin Rose and in the Solid. NFT Exactly. In the NFT and Web3 space, there's a lot of, uh, <laughs> you know, there's, a lot of slip people. Yeah. A lot of transactional people trying to make a buck. That's exactly right. And what I liked about the culture that I think Kevin set up, obviously he's, he's got a successful track record in Web2 and, and, and I saw some other, you know, signals that look really good with Alex and he and get like, other people getting involved that I respect. But what I liked was, and what stood out to me, uh, without going into great detail, was you know in the beginning there were some hiccups as as there were uh, there are with any launches. But what I loved was he got on an AMA and he was like, you know what? Uh, he was transparent about what had had happened, and I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but you know he had, there was a, someone working with them, and it wasn't necessarily like. Um, anything outrageous, but there was, you know, he, he, for example, doesn't want to talk about price, right? Like he's granted the price went very well, but he doesn't want that to be the optics. He wants to really be oriented around building and building community. And I was like, okay, check exactly what you just shared in terms of your founders. I was like, all right, check. He's in it for the long term. You know, he's, he's getting up at 3am and, and even though he doesn't need to work, like you don't need to work, he's deeply passionate about, about this project check, you know, like, okay. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I literally, I, so, you know, I mean, it's down now, but I literally took my house down payment and opted in on a moonbird when it mm-hmm. was, you know, 
when it was going and, and I haven't sold, right? Like yeah. two days later, it had two X, you know, and it looked like it was about to go nowhere but the moon. And I was like, no, I'm going to hold long-term because I liked how he approached his challenge, right? Like when things hit the fan, he was like, didn't, he got right out there and he's like, I want you to ask me anything. Right. And the mm -hmm. harder the question, the better, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was like, in this, yeah, in he this cares, you know, he's, he's a good yeah. soul. He's yes. got good people around him and he's built a great community. And that right. this is the key, you know, so, so the, the project, one of the projects I'm involved in, as you know, is uh, as a founding uh, chairman is, is a company name is Meta Good, the collections on Chain Monkey. And um, very similarly, we have A players that, that aren't in it just to transact and speculate and uh, didn't draw a community of speculators. We have a community that is very dense and very rich with values of community. And I think in part, it's because of the mission around why we started it and what we wanted it to do because it, it attracts people that care. And uh, way back when I, when I uh, Angel invested in Dapper Labs, which created CryptoKitties, um, when they launched CryptoKitties, it was a wave I could see. It was, you know, in terms of uh, uh, a consumer, I thought this could become one of the very major first consumer use cases of Ethereum that just ignites the industry. And, and it did. Uh, and then it got even better when they did their own blockchain with Flow. But when I funded CryptoKitties, I thought, you know, but the transactions are kind of fun. And, you know, it's fun to have a digital cat that you could breed with someone else and make another digital cat and sell it, but it's got to do more. So I asked uh, Roam and team at Dapper to create for me a special edition CryptoKitty, which uh, we, we did. And it was a kitty with a turtle shell because I was throwing an ocean gala. Uh, we auctioned off that crypto kitty for fifty thousand uh, dollars. Gave much of the proceeds to uh, we gave it we split it to two. One was the BVI Turtle Foundation. The other was uh, Captain Paul Watson, and yes. he used the money to fund Operation Gyro, parked his ship in front of the turtle nesting area off of Antigua, and protected the turtles through the whole nesting season so they could get to the ocean. And uh, that was the first ever NFT sold for an ocean charity. And it actually coupled with something in real life to do something positive for this world. Yes. And so, so that's what MetaGood's about. We want to be the, you know, like the chain of blocks, not just storing the information for 10 minute periods like Bitcoin, but mark demarcating lots of good deeds done by communities of interest where there was an economic alignment of interest across the people in that community. And so now we have this little bucket that gets filled up with the, uh, when people buy or sell on-chain monkeys, they, uh, capital goes into this pool that uh, is like little magic wand. Anyone in the community that's a holder can nominate a project, whether it's a charity, whether it's an open source project, whether it's funding an, a Web3 company that they want to fund, but we have to do it in a way that's not a you know, registered investment, et cetera. Uh, but uh, um, it allows uh, collaborative action to stitch together people that are interested in supporting good causes and great things and get them to combine their efforts and fuel these projects. And with that capital, they're kind of connected, right? So it brings, it, it's kind of taking the way I live my life and automating it to some extent mm. across a broader community around certain verticals of interest. 
And, uh, you know, it'd be fascinating to see. And, and I think because it's a community that's values driven, not just trying to make a buck. The OCM, uh, the lab, I saw this graph that Amanda Terry had posted the other day. Um, it was a chart from a third party where uh, OCM is the only collection that has risen in price compared to where it was 30 days ago. Mm-hmm. Yep. All- I was looking at it last night. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Everything else is down. Like, right. So here we are in this shit storm of everything else collapsing 40, 50, 60, 70%. We're higher than we were before. You know, because it's people that care and we're, and when you were involved, you're, you're building value, you're creating value. You're part of a network. You're not just like flipping this bunch of bits to try to make a few F or whatever coin you're in, you know, so you're part of something. That's right. Yeah. I, I'm, I so resonate with what you're building. Uh, I feel like it, it's so, it's so needed. And I feel like honestly, it's it's kind of like, and I know you've talked about this in other shows, but I, I feel like it's also what the industry itself needs to evolve, right? I, I, we need more orientation around both use cases for NFTs and like actually seeing them uh, sort of diversify beyond, you know, simply profile pictures, but also, but also like the the depth of potentiality in regards to how it can contribute to our social fabric, right? Like I love the impact orientation. I mean, as you know, my background was with Global Citizen and, and this was pre-Web3, but, you know, we were like, okay, let's take the traditional music concert, but make it so you have to actually take action around your favorite charities to earn your ticket uh, to entry. And then we leverage that to get, you know, governments, institutions, and, uh, and, and large-scale corporations to donate. So we didn't ask for people's money. We asked for their kind of hearts and, uh, hearts and minds, and then utilize that to get very large-scale contributions now in the billions. But I think NFTs are like, like, I almost wish NFTs had been around because I feel like NFTs are so rich in the potentiality of what they can do for the social good ecosystem. And you, you guys are leading the charge in this regard. You're basically um, establishing the, pre, the the precedent, and and I'm 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 so excited about it. Can you talk about your upcoming launch and 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 share a little bit more about uh, about Karma and and what that's going to embody? Yeah, so the the first collection uh, of the on chain monkeys that you'll see out there today, they're called the Genesis Collection, and what we have coming up, um, and some magical things happen when you draw great people into a community. Uh, because we were mission driven and because we just got great people involved. Uh, there were some, some artists that worked for studios that did Disney animations, like, you know, that were Academy were nominated for Academy Awards, like Ferdinand and Rio and movies like that, Ice Age. And they happened also to have bought some of our original Genesis OCMs. And uh, uh, because they were artists, they, they dressed them up and redid them in, their monkeys they purchased in the style of the kinds of things you'd see with textured fur and all kinds of things that you see in these Disney movies and uh, would show these pictures online. And uh, other community members just got so excited that they were, they were just flooding these folks with offers <laughs> to you know, monetary offers to, can you dress up my monkey? Can you do this? Can and uh, there was such a groundswell that w- it was indicative of real demand. And the artists ended up quitting their jobs and joining our company. And so, nice. 
Yeah. So, so we've got these like a plus a level Academy award nominated artists that have been revving up um, all of the, the OCM designs, because, you know, as you, as many of these PFP collections are constructed, they're, they're similar in that they're basically a variable table, a data table with a bunch of variables and uh, an algorithm that kind of picks out the mix of those things. And there's different rarities depending on the composition of, you know, which elements you got for eyes and lips and earrings or not, or hats or not, or whatever, whatever the mix is. And so, so as, uh, as people got super excited about what this next generation would look like, we decided to basically come up with a, a derivative collection where if you hold one of the OCMs, you will get your dressed up monkey. And that mint happens on the 29th. And, uh, and there are some things that will influence that. We, we did a dessert drop. Uh, so we issued some uh, little NFTs that were either um, donuts, uh, popsicles, or cakes. And depending on which one you had from a rarity perspective, uh, you could basically take that and feed that to your monkey, uh, burn it. And that value, so to speak, a rarity value goes to your NFT, your original OCM. And on the 29th, depending on which one was kind of mixed with that uh, at a snapshot date when you, when you held it, bam, you get something that's, you know, s- super special, extraordinarily super special or super duper extraordinarily special, depending on the rarity <laughs> you had. And then there'll be some other ones released too, so we can broaden our community. So there'll be, a, uh, you know, like the, the original 10,000 will have, a, you know, a souped up version. And then there'll be another 10,000 that people can participate and get uh, uh, on this next mint on the 29th. And by holding those, um, you're basically a member of this broader community that uh, is engineered to do collaborative good. And it's, uh, it's going to be done through a DAO, which we've already been experimenting with. And uh, we did, for example, a little NFT around, uh, you know, when the, when the Ukraine war started to happen, um, we came out with a little, little NFT, issued it, uh, collected some capital in a, in a week or so, and then had a DAO. Uh, the people that bought that could vote on which charity to give that money to, and it went to save the children in Ukraine. And uh, I think the mechanism is is proven, it works. We're gonna scale that up to do these other projects as I discussed earlier. And uh, I think it's, uh, it's I, I'm hoping that it just becomes a great way, as you described, to have uh, economic alignment of interest across communities of interest that's very free form but with a bit of governance so that the stuff goes to good causes with a little bit of a filtering and, uh, and becomes an, just an economic engine for collaboration and a gigantic magic wand that the community can steer to tap different people and projects to empower them. That's what that whole thing's about. I love it. I, I, I feel like it's, it's, it's so necessary and I'm so grateful that you're, you're spearheading uh, this notion of social good um, powered through Web3. I definitely will be getting involved. I'd love to link up um, everything in the show notes for people so they can get involved. And I'll, I'll definitely push this out before the 29th. Um, 
in terms of getting involved in the mints, is it something where they can just go on the website? Will it be on OpenSea? What's the best way to to get involved if people want to uh, to jump in? Yeah, go to the go to the websites and just read up on what's happening. There's and the Discord, the Discord group for Onchain Monkey has a lot of information on what uh, what will happen, when it will happen, how to get engaged. There is some information on OnchainMonkey.com as well as MetaGood.com. Uh, there's a Twitter account for Onchain Monkey that people should follow, and definitely hop into the Discord group because that's where I think a lot of the real time discussion and people asking questions that are reflective of everyone's questions um, get thrown in there. And uh, the company will be doing uh, Twitter spaces and some other things like that to communicate more broadly. So stay tuned to those social channels. Fantastic. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to link to all of that below. I uh, definitely recommend everyone gets involved. And, uh, and I'm going to ask just one last question here, Bill. But before I do, I just want to acknowledge you. Um, you know, I've known you now for, you know, probably six, seven years. And I've always seen you in this sort of Zen-like state, and you've been. Every time I've heard you talk about a project, it's been with 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 this conviction and and an orientation around something that I think will be for the benefit of society. And it's so it's it's so uh, powerful to see someone who has this track record of betting early on winners um, get behind creating. Uh, winners that will also have social benefit and will 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 sort of I, I hope also elevate the industry at large because I think if, as 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 projects that have economic viability but also give back to society elevate I think it creates a whole new genre and a whole new dynamic to the industry so I, I really want to just acknowledge you for your stand and I really appreciate you and I want to close with a final question and and this question is. As, a, as, a, as an investor, as an advisor, as a builder, as a human being, if you were to have like, you know, Tim Ferriss talks about it in this way of like, if you were to have a billboard, what would it say? I think about it more if, if all of your podcasts, if, you, if your teachings, if your talks were kind of, you know, mysteriously going to disappear and you had the opportunity in this moment to share for those listening, sort of one of your core level truths that you think could be of greatest benefit, you know, maybe it's an insight, maybe it's a quote, maybe it's, you know, just a, a perspective on life, you know, as people are listening, um, what would, what would be, you know, sort of that one kernel of Bill Tai wisdom or magic that you could share to sort of close us out that you think, think would be of real be, value? I think it'd be two words and it would be authenticity matters. Mm. And that's it. You know, because I think a lot of people get kind of caught up trying to be somebody else for other people. And the, the closer you can get to your core of, you know, who you really are and sort of, you know, touch the bare metal and let that radiate out and not have a lot of layers on it, um, kind of the, the closer connected you are to the universe and letting that energy flow through you to the outside where it needs to go. It's all the layers of clutter that uh, I think steer people's behavior and time spent day to day that just needs to be stripped off. And, you know, it's kind of like when I started, uh, you know, like windsurfing uh, back when I was uh, in the eighties, 
I used to windsurf and I felt guilty about it. I would, you know, hide it and tell my assistants to put on my calendar that when I had assistants that I was in meetings, you know, <laughs> I, I just needed to go out and do that because that was me, you know, and then somewhere in the 2000s, I just like, well, why should I, why should I hide that? That's who I am. And then so I literally would just, you know, I would sew kites in my office in, in between meetings and I would just be who I was. And what I found out was there were a lot of other people like me. They just didn't yeah. know that I was like that before because I hit it. And so as soon as I could be my authentic self on that dimension, I built up a community of interest. And that community was powerful. It was empowering. It was unlocking. It could collaborate on things. It made life a lot more fun, you know, shared values uh, and the ability to like blow out of the office and know that there'd be 10 more people there waiting for me, you know, secretly showing up and not sure anyone's going to be there. You know, it just, it was just like, it changed my life. So I'd say, you know, yeah, authenticity matters. Be yourself. Authenticity matters. Bill Ty, thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Michael.